Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Isaac Schaefer. I know we probably have some visitors here today, so if you're not aware, our church is led by a leadership team that kind of casts vision for the church and helps to organize things. And then we also have a teaching team. I am not the pastor of this church. So if you come back next week, it will not be me. So you just get me for one week, and that's probably all that you want and or need. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm not fishing for compliments. That is not how I roll. I would much rather not have them at all. I do not like flattery, so don't flatter me. Um, well, I, I get the privilege of, of preaching God's word to you today, and this is something that I'm going to give you for free. It's not in my notes, but um, I honestly just thought of this sitting down there during worship. But if, if you can find something in your life that both fills you up and also empties you out at the exact same time, you've probably found the place where God wants you to be. And so I get to do one of my favorite things today, which is magnify God by the preaching of his word and by the teaching of who he is. And that, that, that is something for me that both fills me up incredibly and also empties me out to uh, an incredible degree. So if you have something like that in your life, I, I would hone in on that. There's probably something there that God wants you to do if you're not already doing it. Um, but I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. God, you are so worthy of all of our praise. God, especially in this Christmas season, it's hard to comprehend. How the God of the universe not just notices us, not just sees us, but loves us to the point of sacrificing his own son. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so, God, this morning we just come to magnify you with, with our worship, with the, with the declaring of, of truth through your word. And so, God, the one thing that I asked this morning was that you would just be made much of today. God, that you would receive all glory, all praise, and all worship from our hearts, from our mouths, from our actions. But God, I also ask that you would just give us a vision of, of your holiness, of your glory, and who you really are. And from that place, understand just how special and unbelievable it is that you call us to yourself, that you desire to be in communion with us. So God, would you just do those things in this place? I pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our second week in our installment of the series Yada, 
And for those of you that, that haven't been with us, yada is the Hebrew word for uh, to know. And it's not just an intellectual knowledge, it's knowing through experience, knowing through intimacy. And Heidi preached a great message last week. Please uh, pray for their family. 90% of them are sick. Uh, so uh, pray for their healing, and we just pray for that right now in Jesus' name. Um, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about the word holiness. And initially, it might be confusing to you what holiness has to do with yada, but I promise I'm going to weave them together, and it's all going to make sense, but you're going to have to listen and stay with me. So let's get into it. So holiness is one of those Christian words that, that we say often, don't we? But when we say it, do we really understand what it means? Do we not understand just what it means, but also the implications behind what holiness really is? When we say God is holy, do we understand what that really means? Do we understand the implications of saying God is holy and, and how that trickles down through our theology, through who we are, through what we are called to do? Because holiness is so important that it really does affect everything. And so if I say holy, what comes to your mind? You don't have to answer out loud. If you can, you want to. You'll be one of those crazy Christians, but you're in a room full of them, so you'll probably be okay. So when I say holy, what really comes to your mind? What if I were to say, thank you, Ryan. That's, that's actually very good. Brownie points for Ryan this morning. <laughs> Give that man a mug. Uh. <laughs> um, what if I were to say that someone or something was completely absent of sin? Would that person or thing be holy? Somebody said yes. Rochelle, you're going to learn so much today. It's going to be awesome. See, I, I, think that we, I think that we're tempted to directly connect sinfulness or the lack thereof to holiness because we are so serious about sin and the Bible is so serious about sin and God is so serious about sin, then therefore holiness must be the absence of it. But in reality, holiness isn't just the absence of sin. In fact, holiness ultimately has very little to do with sin at all. It does have to do with sin. But ultimately, holiness has little to do with sin at all. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to flesh that out as we go forward, because I know some of you are probably confused or think that I'm a heretic. I promise it's all in here. So let me try to describe it this way, at least to start. It's impossible for something to be sinful and holy at the same time. But just because something is absent of sin doesn't mean that it's holy. <laughs> Talking to you, adult. It's impossible for something to be sinful and be holy at the same time, but just because something is absent of sin does not mean that it is holy. You can think about it this way. Every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square. Kind of the same thing. Some of you missed geometry class. You're going to have to look that one up later. I can't spend time on that. It's not important enough. 
So the Webster's definition of holy, and some of you, if you've been in the church for a while, you probably know what this is. Holy is to be set apart or to be sacred. Sacred is just kind of another word for holy. But I think it's also informative to think about what the opposite of holy is. And so if you look up antonyms of holy, an accurate opposite would be common or, or even more accurate, profane. See, profane is a disrespect or irreverence for something that is holy. It's treating something holy as common or not just as common, but with disrespect or irreverence. And so now we're kind of starting to get maybe a little bit better handle on what holy is, but I promise it's going to get better. Because what does the Bible actually say about holiness? How should we think about holiness through the lens of the Bible, which is our ultimate standard of truth? It's what everything that we believe is founded on. It's where the only place that you should go for real truth, immutable truth. So what does the Bible say about holiness and how should we understand that? Uh, How does that apply to our theology? And so the biblical understanding of holiness is ultimately far richer and far deeper than just being set apart, than just being different or unique. And so we're going to flesh that out this morning. Because ultimately in the Bible, God is the standard for holiness. That is perfectly clear, and there's, there's no, no uh, countering that fact. You can argue till you're blue in the face, but God is the standard for holiness. And so what does the Bible say about the holiness of God? That will give us a better picture of what holiness really is rather than just being set apart because that definition falls far short of what it really means. And so let's, let's bring some uh, Bible into this monologue. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now I'm going to stop really quick here because those gods are real. The, the, the Hebrew understanding of gods is these are, these are powerful spiritual entities. The Bible refers to them as principalities. Uh, angels would be on the other side of that. These are powerful created by God, eternal beings that are real, and they, they uh, disregarded their position with God, and they masqueraded themselves as gods. And the Bible literally calls them other Elohim. They are other gods. That doesn't mean that Christianity is a, a polytheistic religion. There is only one true God. There is only one Yahweh, and he created all other things that masquerade as gods. So let's keep going. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. All of those gods, none are holy, none are set apart, none have the same character as God. There is none holy like the Lord. Isaiah 6.3. This is a vision of Isaiah, and uh, or this is a vision that Isaiah had of, of, of the throne room of the Lord. And these are angels calling back to each other and said, and one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means all those other gods, all those other created beings. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord 
Yahweh over all of the hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, many of you may know that, that in the Hebrew language, the, the three-peat, I believe it's called the nadot, and I was going to look it up, and I forgot like five times. But there, there's, there's the three-peat of those words, holy, holy, holy. And, and in the Hebrew language, it means that you are placing the most emphasis possible on an attribute. It is the highest standard of that attribute. And to my knowledge, I'm no biblical scholar, but... To my knowledge, the only time the three-peat is used when describing God is in relation to his holiness. And the most common one is directly holy, holy, holy. The one that's in second place is worthy, worthy, worthy. And he is only worthy, worthy, worthy because he is holy, holy, holy. See, the, the biblical understanding is that God's Holiness is the most important attribute about who he is and what he is. Everything in the Bible about God points to his holiness. But the second part of that verse is actually even more interesting. Because it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I know it makes sense because we just read it, but if you're actually just kind of reading that for the first time or hearing it, you might think, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his holiness, right? So why does it say glory there? Because glory and holiness are inextricably linked. So this is where the biblical view of holiness starts to get so much more rich than just set apart. Are you starting to get a picture of what holiness really is? I love John Piper. I love the way that he, that he describes God with his words and magnifies him so much. So I'm going to read, read a, a quote here from John Piper. And this is John speaking about the holiness of God and describing it. I think it's so rich and so beautiful and so true. His perfection and his greatness and his worth are of such a distinct and separate category that he is in a class all by himself. He has infinite perfections, infinite greatness, and infinite worth. His holiness is what he is as God that nobody else is. His holiness is what he is as God that no one else is. It is his quality of perfection that can't be improved upon, that can't be imitated, that is incomparable, that determines all that he is and is determined by nothing from outside of him. John Piper's like Paul. He's hard to understand sometimes, so I'm going to read that again. It is his quality of perfection that can't be improved upon, that can't be imitated, that is incomparable that determines all that he is and is determined by nothing from outside of him. It signifies his infinite worth, his intrinsic and infinite value. That's much richer than just being set apart. 
You see, he is so infinite in his perfection and greatness and goodness that he freaking glows. That is holiness. You see, glory is the manifestation of the infiniteness of his perfection. That is the glory of God. It is the manifestation of the infiniteness of his perfection. He is in a class all his own. And so, yes, holy does mean set apart. But that is a very loaded word, as you can see. We're going to do a couple more verses. There's going to be lots of scripture in here, so just take pictures. I promise you, you probably won't be able to get to them unless you are like the champion of sword drills in Bible study. Won't happen. Yeah, Chris, maybe, yeah, you can do it. Psalm 98.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. This is another attribute of holiness that I want you to understand. God's holiness, his attribute of holiness is not just a passive one, it's an active one. Sit on that for a second. His holiness is not just a passive attribute, it is an active one. For he has done marvelous things, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. God's holiness is an active attribute, and that should actually be even uh, more understandable now that we know that the definition of, of glory is the manifestation of his infiniteness and perfection. His holy is, is active. It shines forth from him. It, it, it so encompasses who he is that it affects everything that he does. His holiness is active. Psalm 29, 1 through 2. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So David is saying, all of those other heavenly hosts, you are not worthy of worship. Only Yahweh is worthy of worship. Ascribe to him glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. There is only one person, one entity worthy of your worship. And that is Yahweh. Are we starting to get a better picture of what holiness really is, what it really means? Let's go just a little bit deeper. What what does it mean in the Bible when it says that something or someone is holy? And ultimately what it means is that if something or someone is designated as holy because God is the standard of holiness, only God can impute holiness. Does that make sense? Only God can declare something as holy, as sacred, as set apart. And that has massive implications behind it. And so in the Bible, when it says that someone or something has been designated as holy by God, it means that they are ready to be in his presence And they are ready to be used by him. When something or someone is designated as holy, they are ready to be in the presence of a holy God. And they are ready to be used by him. 
So let's look at some passages in that regard. Leviticus 26, sorry, Leviticus 20, 26. And you shall be holy to me. He's taught, this is God talking to the Israelites. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You see, he is bringing us to himself for his own possession. He is designating the people of Israel as holy, as set apart. He is designating them as holy so that they can be in his presence, so that they can be his, so that they can be with him. God's desire was to yadah his people. And so he designated them as as holy. He separated them from the rest of the other peoples. He chose them. So they were designated holy so that they could be in his presence. 2 Timothy 1.9. Jesus who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So he he saved us to a holy calling. Again, he is calling us to himself. He has designated us as holy so that we could be in his presence, but not because of our works, but for his own purpose, so that he can use us. So that his holy works, so that the active attribute of his holiness could be carried out. So that the purpose that he has for us is a display of that holiness so that we reflect the manifestation of the infiniteness of his perfection so that we reflect his glory. One more. 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's pretty clear. We are designated and set apart as holy. That means that we are able to be in his presence and we are ready and useful for every good work for the use of the master of the house. So that's how the Bible describes God's holiness and any person or anything that he designates as holy. It's pretty cool, right? Do we have a better understanding now, a a richer definition and understanding of what holiness is and what it means? So how does the Bible describe us? It gets better, I promise, but it has to get worse before it gets better. Romans 3.10 through 18. None is righteous. Starting off on the wrong foot, aren't we? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not able to be used or ready by the master of the house. Unholy. No one does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not 
known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Second Timothy 3, 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, that's probably a verse that you've heard. But now with our greater understanding of what God's glory and God's holiness really is, that verse should carry a little bit more weight. We have fallen short of the manifest perfection of God, even at the level of sin, let alone achieving infiniteness and perfection. Does that make sense? Remember, holiness is, is more than just the absence of sin. But we, we fall short, we fell short just, just at sin, not even in the manifest presence of his perfection. That means that we are way off. So we have a problem, don't we? A big problem. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it was going to get better. Merry Christmas. Jesus was born. Jesus died. Jesus is the solution. God saw our state. Just like the Jews, just like the Israelites, he looks at you and he says, I want you so terribly. I want to designate you as holy, but in order to get you there, my son has to die. We were so far from him. But in his love and in his, in his compassion and for the sake of his own glory, so that his own glory could be displayed through the sacrifice of the Son and through the glorification of his people. Jesus came. Yes, glory, Marv. Praise God. I'm getting ahead of myself. I already gave you the solution and I still have more questions. So forget about what I just said for now. <laughs> In light of that problem, how can we approach God? How can we enter into the holy of holies to Yadahim? Because that was ultimately the main problem in the Old Testament. It was entering into the presence of God. That was what the law and the sacrificial system was all about. That was it. Entering into the presence of God. That was all. So what do you need to do? What do you need to be in order into the presence of Yahweh? So I'll summarize like half of the Old Testament for you because it's in these two things. You must be loyal only to Yahweh and worship no other gods. That's number one. 
And if you look at the, if you look at the Old Testament and the law, and ultimately that, that's the covenant right there. The covenant is you must be loyal to Yahweh above all other gods. What that does is that allows your sins to be forgiven. Being loyal to, to Yahweh allows your sins to be forgiven. Declaring that he is Lord above all and he alone is to be worshipped, now your sins can be forgiven. So that's number one. Number two is you must participate in the sacrificial system to atone both for your sins and also for the general dirtiness of just being a human. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. Because remember, if God is infinitely perfect, even in my general imperfect humanness, and even apart from my sin, that still poses an issue when it comes to communing with God. Sin is a problem. It's a big problem. Without sin, you have no hope of approaching God. But just because you deal with sin doesn't mean that you automatically get to be in the presence of God. That's what the entire sacrificial system was about. It was God saying, this is what you need to do in order for me to give you my perfection. Because remember, only God can impute holiness. It wasn't through the works of man. It wasn't through the sacrifices himself. God just said, if you do this, I will give you my holiness so now you can be in my presence. And this is still the picture that we see of salvation in the New Testament. It is still about entering into the presence of God. The image that's painted for us by the New Testament writers about salvation is anchored in being in the place where God dwells. Even visions of revelation and visions of heaven, like yes, there's cities and lands, but it's centered around Jerusalem and even then centered around the temple and even then centered around the throne room of God. It is all about being in his presence. Even the gospel writers are extremely clear to point out after Jesus died. The, the, the biblical writers could have said anything in that moment. And, and up until that point, it's a very uh, chronological, in, in the passion of the Christ, it's a very chronological telling of what is happening. But as soon as Jesus died, the, the, the vision that the, that the writers give to the people reading it are Christ died and it pans to the temple. And they do that not, not just because it's a chronological thing, but they want to shift your gaze to the fact that Christ died and what immediately happened was the temple curtain was torn in two. So what they're trying to get from you is that the, the purpose of everything is about being in the presence of God. The idea... In the New Testament of salvation is just like the Old Testament. It's about being in communion and being intimate. It's you dying, Yahweh. But just like in the Old Testament, salvation is not simply a matter of being saved from my sin. Yes, that's a problem. My sin does need to be dealt with. It is impossible for anything to be holy and sinful at the same time. But just because something is absent of sin doesn't mean that it's holy. See, the Bible says that God's wrath is reserved for his enemies. That the, the wrath of God, the punishment from God, is reserved for his enemies. Who are his enemies? Anything masquerading as a God, that's not him, and anybody that worships them. That's who God's wrath is reserved for, those people.
the penultimate standard for righteousness has always been and will always be loyalty and faithfulness to Yahweh. Remember, that, that allows the Israelites' sins to be forgiven. And frankly, it's what allows your sins to be forgiven. But that is ultimately why Jesus' death was so powerful. Because only Jesus was perfect in his faithfulness to the will of the Father. Only Jesus was perfect in that faithfulness and that undying loyalty to Yahweh. And it was that perfect faithfulness that was imputed to us on the cross that removes the punishment of our sin. It is the perfect faithfulness of Jesus to Yahweh that removes the punishment of our sin. This is why Philippians is so clear to point out that that Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. Yes, there have been other martyrs that were obedient to Yahweh to die, but no one has been perfectly faithful to the will of the Father, obeying every word and disregarding everything else. And even though it cost him his life, Jesus was still faithful. And that is the perfect faithfulness that was imputed to you that allows your sins to be forgiven. It fulfills the covenant. It makes permanent your place on team Yahweh and rescues you from his enemies. We are no longer enemies of God deserving of wrath. But what about being in communion with him? Remember, the biblical picture of salvation is entering the Holy of Holies, entering God's presence in a Yadah relationship. And that requires holiness, not just absence of sin. See, having our sins removed gets us to neutral, not positively righteous, let alone infinitely perfect. I know this might be confusing to some of you because you probably haven't heard it talked about in this way, but this is, this is a, a more detailed description of what the Bible actually teaches about the connection between the Old Testament system and the New Testament system. Because you have to understand that in order to fully understand the gift of Jesus on the cross, because it's much more powerful than I think we in Western Christianity really understand and imagine. It doesn't just stop at forgiving you of your sin. It makes you perfectly holy. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Can't help it. In order to be intimate with him, you must be holy. And so what is the solution for that problem? I already answered my question. Remember, when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two. And so just as Jesus in his faithfulness was perfect to fulfill the covenant, Jesus was also the perfect fulfillment of the sacrificial law. Paul Paul talks about the fact that Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of the sacrificial law. And so his perfection, his holiness was also imputed onto us. And therefore, we now have access to the Father. Jesus' perfect faithfulness was imputed to us to forgive our sins, and his perfect holiness was imputed to us to allow us access to the Father. 
I probably would have clapped there. But it, no, 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 too late, too late, missed it. No, you can praise God later for that, but not now, moving on. But this brings up a biblical concept that's inform, informally called the already but not yet. And our perfection and our holiness is one of the premier examples of this concept. Because in Jesus, we are completely free of sin and perfectly holy. Now, who in here feels like they are currently free of sin and perfectly holy? Again, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, our eternal standing with Jesus is that we are already sinless and perfect in goodness, but our present reality is that that is not yet realized. We are already made perfect in Jesus in eternity, but our present reality is not yet a realization of that. That is the already, but not quite yet. And so remember that I said we now have access to the Father. We have access to him. And I use that word very specifically, not just because it's biblical, but because it means something. You see, once our already state, the state of our perfect goodness is realized, our access won't be access. It will be unfiltered and unhindered, yada, with Yahweh. Once our already is realized, once we are completely made perfect, and that present reality that we are not yet in, once our not yet becomes our already, communion with Yahweh won't be access. It will be perfect, unfiltered, and unhindered yada with Yahweh. And this is why the curtain was torn in two, but not obliterated. Because currently we're still, even though we're perfect in heaven and perfect in eternity and will be made perfect on the day of the Lord, we are still battling with our imperfection. And we are not able to fully behold Yahweh as he is through zero filters. And so the temple curtain was torn in two, not obliterated. And that's important. There is still a separation that we cannot openly behold him. We still need holiness. The wrath of our sin is gone. We are completely forgiven, and we will be completely holy on the day of the Lord when we reach heaven. But we still also need holiness today in order to commune with him. The punishment for your faithlessness to Yahweh has been removed, and the holiness of Jesus will make you fully perfect on the day of the Lord. But what about on this side of heaven? What do we do now? We are to pursue holiness. And ultimately, in the New Testament context, we are to pursue Christ-likeness. 
was Christ was the, uh, was the perfect reflection of the character of God, and it was Christ's perfection that was imputed onto us. And so what we are to pursue, this is the one difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament system. We are not to pursue sacrifices in the temple. We are to pursue believing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and made holy. We are to pursue Christ-likeness. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my absence, but so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does this really mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I will be very clear what it does not mean. It does not mean that you ever, 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 ever doubt your salvation. The Bible is very clear about that. There's an entire book of the Bible written about that. The majority of a book of the Bible. 1 John, 1 John 1, I believe. I know it's 1 John somewhere, one of the three. We are to never doubt our salvation, and you can never earn your salvation. You can never earn your way into heaven. You will be perfected on the day of the Lord because of the sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus alone, not because of your works. But our fear, our, our humble awe and the weighty respect, our, our walking out our salvation with that humble awe and a weighty respect and trembling should come from a lack of walking out what salvation offers to us. Access. The opportunity to yada Yahweh. That is where our, our humble awe and our weighty respect should come from. The fact that our salvation are already offers us access to Yahweh. So what are we going to do with that? We need to walk out our salvation, walk toward that torn curtain with a humble awe and a weighty respect. Romans 6.22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. We are set free from sin and, we, and we, are, we are owned by God. We are beholden to his will, being like him. We are made holy. That's the only way we can be in his presence. That's the already. But, the, but the, the not yet is the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. That's what that word means. It's the process of becoming holy. But the fruit that you get from your already leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. Again, this is an already, but a not yet. We are called to pursue holiness and progressive sanctification to become more like Christ. The good news is that the cross has also provided you the grace and the Holy Spirit to give you the ability and the desire to pursue it. Even your ability and your desire is not mustered up on your own. It is a gift of the cross. It is a grace that God gives you. And so again, before you think you can earn holiness, remember that even any progress in holiness is because of the sanctification of the Lord and the grace that he gives you. 
2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. This is another already and not yet, but it's a great one. I'm going to try to wrap it up here. Here's the already. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge, that Greek word there for knowledge is the same as the Hebrew word yada. It's a knowledge through intimacy and through experience. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. Chew on that for a second. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That is our already, but this is our not yet. For this very reason, in light of your already, in light of the very great and precious promises that were granted to you, in light of being a partaker of the divine nature, for that very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. It starts with faith. Because faith is the only thing that will ever save you. Faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice on the cross that removes the punishment of your sin and imputes holding us onto you. It starts with faith. Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the yada of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when I talked about the fact that if something or someone is holy, it is ready to be used by God for his good purpose. It is ready for use by the master of the house for whatever he wants to do with it. And so verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. Let's flip that to the positive. If these are yours and are increasing, it gives you the increased ability to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, the more that you become like him, the more you will be able to yada him. It is possible to increase in holiness here on earth, not just because of your effort, but because the grace of God allows you to pursue it. The grace of God both allows us and compels us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Through Jesus, we have access to him and can be used by him. But if we become more like him, if we progress in our sanctification, we can more frequently and more intimately dwell with him. We are being made closer and closer to that infinite perfection that one day will be ours in heaven that we have been sealed with by Jesus and cannot be taken away. But in the process, if we progress in that sanctification, we can dwell with him more intimately, we can yadah him, and we can more readily and more powerfully be used by him.
See, the curtain is torn. We have access. But for a greater experiential knowing of him, we must walk through the curtain in the pursuit of being like Christ. Do we have a better understanding, church, about what holiness really is? Now do you have a better understanding of the gravity of the fact that we are about ready to celebrate the birth of our Savior? It's not something you could ever achieve on your own. Even your progression in holiness is because of His grace. But just like every gift, you need to accept it and unwrap it and use it to progress in holiness. And as you, as you become more like him, you'll become more tender to his voice. Becoming more and more, and more like Christ and his faithfulness. Where you are increasingly disobeying fewer words and increasingly not hearing anything that's not him. So I want to give us a chance to respond. I just want you to close your eyes. I'm going to start with this. If you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is the word of the Lord to you. I bought you with my blood. You've sinned against me. But even when you were my enemy, I loved you. I loved you so deeply. And I sent my son because he was the only chance you will ever have at somehow being perfectly faithful to me and perfectly holy. And it's not because of anything that you have ever done or will ever do. Nothing that you've ever done disqualifies you from salvation and nothing that you will ever do will be able to take it away because it rests on my son. It rests on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lamb who was slain. He is perfect and he is worthy and that perfection can be imputed onto you if right now in this moment you would believe that you need it and that you accept it. Maybe there are people in this room, you feel like you've just kind of hit, hit a plateau of your, your understanding of God or your knowledge of him or, or your ability to be used by him. 
But maybe the plateau you've actually hit is your pursuit of holiness. And this is not about your works. It's about the grace that God gives you. But maybe you've stopped unwrapping that gift. Maybe you've stopped using that grace to pursue him in holiness. And so if that's you this morning, let this be just just a check. I'm not saying that's what it is. But let let, let this be a check in your own heart. Have you been unwrapping God's gift of grace to pursue him in holiness? I think there's another group of people in here this morning. I probably belong to that first group. I need to keep unwrapping his gift of grace. I need to I need to not love this life so much that that I'm unwilling to continue to pursue him even when he's calling us to difficult things. But maybe there's another group of people in this room where you just feel weary. You just feel burdened because you just feel like you can't quite make it to him. You just can't quite get there. I want you to rest in this fact this morning. You will never get there until the day of the Lord, until he comes back in victory. And you didn't get to where you are now in the first place without him anyway. So God is telling you this morning, yes, continue to pursue holiness, but you need to rest in me for your real perfection. The Bible says that God knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that you will never be perfect. He wants you to continue to pursue it, but he doesn't want the pursuit of it to weigh you down to immobility. He wants you to rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So the band is going to sing one more song. We're going to, we're going to make space. And so if you need to to respond this morning, if there's something that you need to lay down at the altar, maybe you need to lay down your effort because you've been trying on your own and you need to lay it at the foot of the cross in an acknowledgement that only he can get you where you need to go. Maybe you need to lay down your effort and rest in the cross. Maybe you need to lay down your pride and thinking that you can do it on your own and rest in him. Maybe you need to believe in him for the first time. Be covered by his blood. Whatever you need to lay before the cross, I would just encourage you to to do whatever God is telling you to do. To acknowledge him in whatever way that he is telling you to acknowledge him. To worship him in whatever way he is telling you to worship him. And as the band plays, I just want you to respond. Jesus, we love you. You are infinite in perfection. Yahweh, thank you for the birth of your son. We thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to pursue intimacy with you. 
God, would we walk in all of those? In the name of Jesus, amen.